It has been a few weeks and we've, since we've been in the book of Ephesians, and so as we sort of get back in the swing of things this morning, picking up really what is an amazing epistle, I want to begin by reading the last section we were in, I think before the new year. And then I want to give a brief recap to sort of catch us up so that we have the full context as we continue into the next verse. So, if you want to go ahead and turn to chapter 5 of the book of Ephesians, I'll begin reading with verse 11. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason, it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. When we were here last, we spoke about our duty as believers to avoid participating in the evil deeds of this world and even to expose them. And so we understand we're to avoid things like bitterness and anger and clamor and sexual perversion and impurity and untruths. These are all things that Paul's just mentioned in chapter 4. And instead, we are told even to expose them. This is really a call to an active Christian life. In fact, there is no other type of Christian life. The Christian life is never passive. It's always active. So in other words, we aren't to retreat into some commune or monastic style of life, which has been done in centuries past, but instead we're called to be active and our faith. And in that activity, we expose the darkness for what it really is. We aren't called to retreat. Rather, Christians are called to march forward boldly and courageously, proclaiming the gospel of Christ and glorifying God in all we do as we live here, our lives on earth. There's no such thing as sacred versus secular for the Christian. Everything the Christian does is meant to bring glory to God. We're meant to be Christians in the home. We're meant to be Christians in the grocery store. We're meant to be Christians if we're involved in politics. We're meant to be Christians wherever we go. We never leave the house and leave our Christianity behind. That's not an authentic Christian life. Now, if you recall, we spoke of three primary ways that we are to expose the darkness. I don't want to go into any great detail again with you this morning, but I do want to just remind you of them to catch us up. The first thing that we said is that we expose the darkness by living a holy and upright life. Living a holy and upright life. Your life will either expose the darkness or it will enlist you in the darkness. You'll either join the darkness by your lifestyle or your lifestyle will expose the darkness around you. The second way that we expose the darkness is by speaking up against those things which are contrary to God's Word. Sometimes living our life as a display of holiness and of God's working in us is not enough. Sometimes we have to speak up. Charles Spurgeon once said, Those who hold God's word never need add something untrue in speaking to men. The sturdy truth of God touches every chord in every man's heart. We see that today when the world promotes all sorts of things that are vile and detestable. We have to speak up. The third thing that we said is that we expose the gospel by actively sh- uh, sorry we expose the darkness by actively sharing the gospel with those around us the gospel exposes man's depravity man's wickedness it shines a light on the darkness of man's heart 
and exposes it. So we expose the darkness by living a holy life, by speaking up against those things that are contrary to God's Word, and by proclaiming the gospel to those around us. And then we ended on what's really a gospel call in verse 14. So Paul's been talking about exposing the darkness, which he says is often too disgraceful to even speak of in public. And I think we recognize that when he says things like that, we are living in the very days where that's true for us. Some things are, that are promoted across every television, every news station, every mobile device ought to never have left the dark corners of the alley and yet they're right in front of us constantly. In fact, I read an article, which was no surprise, just this week that now Facebook and Instagram are going to change their settings to allow new perversities to be displayed graphically on their sites. Disgusting and vile deeds of the dark that no respectable man or woman should ever be forced to see, hear, or speak about, let alone constantly bombarded by them from every sphere of life. Yet, this is the reality in which we live now. But Paul calls us to expose these things by the light, as opposed to retreating from society, which some are trying to do. That's not our role. And I think we have to understand that in Ephesus, these things, though the form was different were all around the Christians. They couldn't escape Roman culture. They couldn't escape pagan festivals. They couldn't escape temple prostitution. No, they were called instead to be light wherever they were and to expose the darkness. And so that's the same for us. Now, it is interesting that Paul, as he sort of closes out that section with a call to the gospel, I, I realize that Paul is speaking to professing believers. And so it's just, why would you give this here to believers? And I think, now this is just my opinion, that Paul knew there would be some who would read this epistle, some who were in the church in Ephesus, who were still trapped in darkness, although they professed to be in the light. And perhaps he intended it for Unbelievers, it is thought traditionally to be an Easter hymn that the early church would recite from Isaiah for unbelievers. I mean, it is quite a powerful call before he continues on in the next verse to unbelievers. I mean, listen again to what it says. Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. For the unbeliever, this is undoubtedly a call to cry out to Jesus, to awake from his stupor, to awake from their dead ways, to arise. In other words, it's a call to turn and repent from sin and to then see Christ shine on them with his saving grace. But for us who believe, I, I don't want us to neglect the beauty of this hymn because this is your life story. This is your life story. You were once dead. You were once asleep. And God called you and you awoke. You cried out to Him, repented of your sin, and at that moment, and even now as I'm preaching to you, this very moment, Christ shines on you. What an encouragement for the believer especially as we consider the dark days in which we live. So our lives expose the darkness. Paul ends with that gospel call from Isaiah. We verbally expose the darkness. The gospel proclamation exposes the darkness. In other words, your whole Christian walk is meant to expose the darkness in one way or another. So that brings us to our verse for this morning. If you will, put your eyes now on verse 15. 
chapter 5, 15. It reads, Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. I like how the New King James reads. The New King James says, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. The word there actually does mean fool. You know, the Bible has quite a lot to say about the unwise, about the fool. I decided to do a brief search this week and just to see for myself how often does the Bible speak about this. For instance, in the 31 brief chapters of the book of Proverbs alone, it speaks of the fool almost a hundred times. Just in Proverbs 31. Beyond that, the term and associated terms are used nearly 400 times between the Old and the New Testament. Proverbs 12.15 says, The way of the fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. The very next verse says, A fool's anger is known at once, but a prudent man conceals dishonor. Proverbs 1.22, How long, O naive ones, will you love being simple-minded? And scoffers delight themselves in scoffing, and fools hate knowledge. Proverbs 14.7 says, Leave the presence of a fool, or you will not discern words of knowledge. Proverbs 23.9, Do not speak in the hearing of a fool, for he will despise the wisdom of your words. Well, that's a message for today. We waste far too many words on those who have deaf ears. Proverbs 10, 18 through 19 says, He who conceals hatred has lying lips, and he who spreads slander is a fool. When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. That, that's just Proverbs. That's just a sampling of what Proverbs has to say about the fool. The prophet Isaiah says, For a fool speaks nonsense and his heart inclines towards wickedness, to practice ungodliness and to speak error against the Lord, to keep the hungry person unsatisfied and to withhold drink from the thirsty. Isaiah 32.6 And perhaps one of the most striking and, by the way, graphic images in the Bible concerning the fool is this one, and you'll know it, Proverbs 26, 11, like a dog that returns to its vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Those of you who have dogs get that. I'm really just wanting to sort of paint a picture for you this morning of the foolish man in the eyes of Scripture, how God sees the fool. Listen to Ecclesiastes 10, 1 through 3. Dead flies make a perfumer's oil stink, so a little simple-minded folly is weightier than wisdom and honor. The, the King James Version, the New King James Version, captures this image beautifully. Listen to the way it reads. Dead flies putrefy the perfumer's ointment and cause it to give off a foul odor, so does a little folly to the one respected for wisdom and honor. While writing to Titus, Paul says, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to be peaceable, considerate, demonstrating all gentleness to all men, for we ourselves were also once foolish. Now, I don't want you to miss the past tense there, right? We were foolish. That's an important one later on. He says, For we ourselves also once were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and slaved to various lusts and pleasures. He's describing what the foolish life is like. Spending our lives in malice and envy, despicable, hating one another. But when the kindness and affection of 
God, our Savior, appeared. He saved us, not by works which we did in righteousness, but according to His mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, we would become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's what the fool looks like, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to lusts, spending their life in malice and envy. So, by now, this morning, I hope that you're kind of saying to yourself, okay, I I get the picture, I understand that foolishness is wicked in the sight of God. I see that the fool and the foolish life is that which produces all sorts of trouble and death and destruction. But then I hope also about this time that a question is starting to arise in your mind. So you get this picture, but then the question is, okay, well, who exactly is a fool? Who is the fool? And this is the million-dollar question. There's an old story of a king and his clown, or jester, who sometimes said very foolish things. And so one day, the jester comes to the king and he says something so foolish that the king hands him a staff and says to the jester, take this and keep it until you find a bigger fool than yourself. Some years later, the king lay on his deathbed. His courtiers were called in, his family and his servants were also there and stood around his bedside and The king addressing them said, I'm about to leave you. I'm going on a very long journey and I will not return again to this place. And so I've called you all to say goodbye. It was customary in those days to think of the afterlife as a journey. It really is. But then something else happened just after the king made that statement. His jester stepped forward. And addressing the king, he said, Your Majesty, may I ask a question? When you have journeyed abroad visiting your people or paying diplomatic visits to other courts, your heralds and your servants have always gone before you making preparation for you. May I ask, what preparations your Majesty has made for this long journey that he's about to take? So he's on his deathbed. Alas, replied the king, I've made no preparations. Then said the jester, take this staff with you, for now I have found a bigger fool than myself. It's a sobering story. Who is the fool? The man who neglects Christ on this earth is the fool. Now, we can deduce that from the context of the passage. Paul's clearly speaking about the unbeliever. He's been comparing the two throughout the last chapter or two. But then the question arises, well, where does this start? When do you become a fool? How does someone become a fool? Well, Proverbs twenty-two fifteen tells us that Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. That's very interesting, a lesson we've long forgotten in our country. We're basically trying to let children run homes and run governments and all sorts of other things, but the Scripture says that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. Well, that's the beginning. We are born fools, every one of us. And how can that be? Well, Psalm 14 gives us the answer. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. We are all born into sin. We are all born enemies of God. We are all born in darkness. And therefore, we are all born fools. But the greatest fool in the world is the one who says there is no God. Maybe he says it verbally. We get that sometimes. But maybe he declares his denial by refusing to submit to Christ as Lord and Savior. 
just by his lifestyle of rejecting Christ. He declares there is no God. Or perhaps it's as Romans puts it in Romans 1, 18-23. You know the passage well. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. And so the fool is the man who looks at all of the creation and suppresses the truth of God's existence. The fool rejects the invisible attributes displayed by God, His eternal power, His divine nature that can be clearly seen in all of creation. Well, Paul goes on to say, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Doesn't that sound like our society today? They reject God, they reject God's word, they reject God's morals, they reject God's principles, professing to be wise, all the while, truly they are the fools. It says, and they exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Surely we have plenty of people who still worship nature and animals. But you know, in our society, what people often worship in exchange for God is themselves. But they've rejected the knowledge of God and worship something else. So the fool is the one who lives his life in such a way as to deny God. Now, this isn't to say that they don't have knowledge. And I want us to understand that. There are men and women who are brilliantly minded, who have lots of worldly, earthly knowledge, but all of the knowledge in the world is useless in the grand scope of eternity because there's going to be a day that they're going to stand before Almighty God and they're going to have to give an account. And you can solve all the math problems in the world you can send rockets to the moon. You can understand all the theories of earth, how radiation works and physics and the sciences. But on that day when you stand before God, when they stand before God, that knowledge means nothing. And on that day, the fool will be proven cast into utter, total darkness apart from the love of Christ, bearing the wrath of God on their sin for all of eternity. So who is the fool? The fool is the one who rejects Christ. Jesus, as He's given the sermon on the mount, he's standing on the Mount of Beatitudes, preaching and teaching. He nears the end of his teaching in Matthew chapter 7. And we read this, it says, When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. I, I, just, I, want, you to paint, I, I want you to see this picture of what Christ is about to say in your mind, Okay. Just four verses before that in chapter 7, Christ says, after His teaching, He says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. So you imagine a house being built on a foundation of rock. And then He goes on, He says, And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And yet, it did not fall for it had been founded 
on the rock. But we live in a place with earthquakes. We understand the necessity of a house having a good foundation, right? But he doesn't stop there. Jesus goes on and he says, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. So the fool is the one who hears the words of Christ and refuses to act on them. So we're told to walk carefully. Walk carefully. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So the fool is the one who rejects Christ, and the penalty is so, so great that Paul says now, Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise In other words, it's like Paul is saying, Dear Ephesians, dear Christians, in in light of all that I've been teaching you about the worthy walk, remember it and be careful because attention needs to be given to your walk. Don't walk in the ways of darkness. Dear Christian, don't be led astray by this world. You've been changed. You've been made new. You've been made wise. And so walk as wise men. That's what Paul's communicating here. So Paul's admonition is that we walk carefully. And we understand this. We've come across this language multiple times already. When Scripture uses this language of walk, we understand that he's speaking about the way we live our whole life. In chapter 2, we're told as believers that we're created in Jesus Christ to walk in good works that God has prepared for us. You you remember that? In chapter 3, Paul describes the Christian walk in his prayer at the end. Right? He says, listen to his prayer, Ephesians 3, 14, 19. Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derive its name, that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. This is the Christian walk. That your hearts are filled with faith, that you're rooted and grounded in the love of Christ, that you can comprehend the things of Christ. And then in chapter 4, we're taught to walk worthily because we are children of God. We're told that our walk is the opposite of the walk or the life of the unbeliever. In chapter 5, at the beginning, we're told to walk in love. We're then told to walk as children of the light. And now Paul ends this whole particular train of thought with a plea to be careful how we walk. Not as fools, but as wise. Because you are no longer fools. Christ has saved you and The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Your salvation took you from being foolish and put you in the camp of wisdom. And that was the beginning of it. Be careful how we walk, not as unwise, but as wise. You know, as we consider what it means to be careful about our walk, you know, just consider this. We often take great care of the things we love, right? We're very careful about some things in life. For example, if we have pets, 
then we're careful to treat them well. We make sure they have the right food, clean water. If they need to go to the vet, we do that because we're, we want to take good care of our animals. If we have kids, we take great care in where they go and what they eat and how they dress and whom they're influenced by and every area of their walk, if you're a good parent. A good parent considers what's best for the child. They're careful with their child. And people send spend copious amounts of money and time taking care of their bodies. They're careful with their bodies, some more than others. We take great care when it comes to our jobs. And really the question this morning that Paul presents to us is, do you take great care concerning your spiritual walk? That's really the question. Do you take great care concerning your spiritual walk? Look, pets will pass away. Kids will grow up and leave the home. Bodies, I'm sorry, will get old and wrinkly and wear down. Jobs will end, either in retirement or some other way. But your soul lives forever. There's nothing more precious or more valuable. And it's the only thing you have that will last forever. And surely something so valuable deserves to be guarded and guided. We said the starting place is the fear of the Lord. That's the beginning of being wise. That happens at the point of salvation. It doesn't mean that you instantly have all the knowledge you need of Christ, but you have the beginning of wisdom. You're no longer a fool. And so then the question is, how do you continue to walk as wise men? So you get saved, you have true wisdom now, but then how do you take care of your walk after that? And so this morning, I want to give you three keys to walking as wise men. Three keys to walking in wisdom. The first is that you must live in the Word. The first is that you must live in the Word. Proverbs 10, 21 tells us that the fool dies for lack of wisdom. The fool dies for lack of wisdom. So salvation is the starting point, but then we find the wisdom that we need for life beyond that in God's Word. Listen to Paul's instructions to Timothy. In 2 Timothy, he says, You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. So here's wisdom and salvation. You have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And so we find knowledge and true wisdom within the pages of Scripture. It doesn't stop at your salvation, obviously. Now again, we have to remember that wisdom is not purely having head knowledge. I mean, the, the devil knows the contents of the Bible, I would wager, far better than any of us, and yet he is the king of fools. He was the very first to say, I will be like God. Charles Spurgeon rightly said concerning wisdom, he said, wisdom is the right use of knowledge. To know is not to be wise there is no fool so great as a knowing fool, but to know how to use knowledge is to have wisdom. Many men know what is in the Bible. Not all obey. Those are the ones who build their house on the sinking sand. They hear the words of Christ and they choose to ignore it. So we need to have knowledge to be wise, but it has to be God's knowledge, and then it must be acted upon. 
You know, the reason the world and the Word clashes is because wisdom, true wisdom is found in the Word and fools are found in the world. And it's never been easier to see, I think, this in our lifetime than today. The world teaches there's no absolute truths, and they make that statement as though it were an absolute truth, which is utter foolishness. The very statement contradicts itself. But the Word of God, however, teaches us that there are absolutes, there are standards of measure, there are rights and there are wrongs, there's good and there is evil, and it's not subjective, it's objective. And the Word brings clarity to the issues of the day. The world tells you, for instance, that the egg in an eagle's nest must be protected and enforced, in fact, by severe penalty. You can't even pick up an eagle feather here in Alaska legally without facing a quarter of a million dollar fine. And those same people would tell you that babies in the womb are worthless and can be murdered with no penalty, and that it is the right of a person to do that. Wisdom is in the Word. Fools are in the world. The world tells us that you can't know what gender you are from birth, but God, in His Word, tells us that He created us male and female, so you have two options. And they're quite evident when you're born. So therefore, if we are to walk as wise men and women, we must live in the Word. We have to have the wisdom of God, and this is the only source of absolute, eternal truth we have. Secondly, if we are to walk in wisdom, we must live out of the Word. So we live in the Word, and then we must live out of the Word. What do I mean? In other words, we have to then apply what we've learned from the Scriptures. I mean, the very admonition to walk speaks to the way we live. And Christians, by the way, do live differently. As Christians, we are different. Paul addresses the believers at Corinth and he points out to what they no longer are because they're different. Listen to what he says. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. It's 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. You see, as a Christian, you are living in wisdom. You are no longer these things. The Christian is no longer an adulterer, no longer a homosexual, no longer a liar, no longer gender-confused. These are all things of the past. These are the ways of the foolish life that Paul is saying has passed away because of the intervention of Christ, you being washed and sanctified and justified. But then we don't just stop with that. We progress in sanctification, and this is living out of the Word as we come to understand and know more of what God's Word teaches, and we obey that, we grow in our sanctification. We grow in our walk in wisdom. The Christian life is never a still life. Never at a standstill. The Christian is either moving forwards or going backwards. And living in the Word gives us the knowledge that we need to then live out of the Word and to apply that knowledge to our lives through the help of the Holy Spirit. So the, re the reality is the more you are in the Word, the more you are likely to live out of the Word. You know, we're told that it, the truth will set you free. 
But that's not really all of the story because it's only the truth that you know that can set you free. And so you have to be in the Word and then you have to live out of the Word. And so the more you're in the Word and the more you obey, the more you desire to obey and the more you are able to obey because the Holy Spirit works in that. And so sin becomes darker to you, more detestable. And as you grow, you start to hate those little sins with a greater hatred. And you start to become more wise and you start to grow in wisdom. And then you yearn to pray more and you become more wise. And you learn to study more and you become more wise. And then you find that meeting with the saints becomes more desirable. Worship and song becomes more sweeter. You're less concerned about the style than you are the words and what they communicate and you become more wise. Preaching becomes more prosperous to your soul because you're not dependent upon the faults or the excellencies of the preacher. You're listening to the Word and your heart is open to have God change you and you grow wiser. And then the Word of God becomes treasured above all else. And so we live out of the Word Jesus' call to obedience when He said, if you love Me, you will obey My commandments, is a call to live out of the Word, His Word. This is why we elevate the preaching and teaching of the Word in this church. Because that's where wisdom comes from. It's the very Word of God. So, we live in the Word. We live out of the Word. And lastly, if we are to walk wise lives carefully, we must live pursuing the Word. We live in the Word, we live out of the Word, and we live pursuing the Word. I worked hard on that alliteration. I hope you appreciate that. Listen, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So Jesus is the Word. So when I say we must live pursuing the Word, I'm saying we must live pursuing Christ. This is the aim of the entire Christian life. If you're not pursuing Christ, then what are we doing? Jesus gave this very call in Matthew 16. I love this. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Boy, I'd love to see that on a church billboard outside. Come, deny yourself with us and follow Christ. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? J.C. Ryle once said, As the soldier follows his general, as the servant follows his master, as the scholar follows his teacher, as the sheep follows its shepherd, just so ought the professing Christian to follow Christ. We live pursuing the Word, and we find wisdom as we are faithful. So this is the question that you have to ask yourself this morning, are you walking carefully in wisdom? And the faithful Christian will answer yes, of course. But we must never let our guard down. Are we following Christ? Is He Lord and Master? Is He our teacher, our comforter, our Savior, our friend? Are we pursuing the Word? Can we cry out with the psalmist with 
our hearts laid bare before God. Can you cry out with the psalmist in Psalm 119 when he says, Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes. I mean, this is David ripping his heart open and begging God. He says, And I shall observe it to the end. Give me understanding that I may observe your law and keep it with all my heart. How many people open God's word and they say, Lord, teach me. Teach me and I'll keep this with all my heart. How many Christians view God's word that way? This is David's heart. He says, make me walk in the path of your commandments for I delight in it. The man who's, or woman who's pursuing Christ will delight in his word. You show me someone who doesn't delight in this book, and I'll show you someone who isn't following Christ. I don't care what they say. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Turn away my eyes from looking at vanity. And revive me in your ways. Establish your word to your servant as that which produces reverence for you. Let me just say something about this TV show. There's a popular TV show called The Chosen. I'm sure you know about it. If you want to see what irreverence looks like, then watch that garbage. Here, David's crying out, saying, establish your word to your servant as that which produces reverence for you. And then we got some jokers in Hollywood making light of the life and ministry of Christ, taking liberties where they shouldn't. Little t-shirts with Jesus on them, pointing and winking at people. The director, writer of Chosen, making jokes about Christ, hanging on the cross, looking at Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, and winking at him. It's irreverent. You won't find that in the one who's truly pursuing Christ. The psalmist goes on, he says, Turn away my reproach, which I dread. Turn away my sins, because I hate them with every fiber of my being. For your ordinances are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. Revive me in your righteousness. He knows that there's life in pursuing God. Psalm 119. What about from Mark? Can you identify with this? They came to Jericho, and as he was leaving, that being Jesus, leaving Jericho with his disciples and a large crowd, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting on the road, and when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazarene, he began to cry out and said, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and he said, call him here. So they called the blind man, saying to him, take courage, stand up, for he is calling you. Throwing aside his cloak, he jumped up and he came to Jesus. And answering him, Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said, Rabboni, that's teacher, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said, go, your faith has made you well. Now listen to this, don't miss this part. Immediately he regained his sight and what did he do? He began following him on the road. He pursued the word. Can you relate to that? What about the woman with the issue of blood in Mark 5? She pushes through the crowd, knowing that she's detested because of her ailment, whatever exactly that was, in desperation, just to get to Jesus, saying that if I just touch His garments, I will get well. What about 
you? Are you clinging to Christ? Will you push through the crowds to get to Christ? What about Zacchaeus in Luke 19? Zacchaeus was not just a sinner. In that society, he was the worst of sinners. He was not just a tax collector, but he was a chief tax collector. But he had to see Jesus. And so he climbed a tree in desperation because he was so short he couldn't see over the crowd. He had to see Jesus. Oh, and Jesus saw him. Jesus saw Zacchaeus and told him to come down, and he went to stay with him in his house. And that day Zacchaeus gained true wisdom. And he said to Christ, Behold, Lord, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anything, which surely he had as a tax collector, I will give back four times as much. Well, his life just demonstrated his profession. In an instant, all he wanted was Christ. And he wanted Christ more than his wealth, and he was certainly wealthy. He wanted Christ more than his reputation. He wanted Christ more than his pride. He climbed a tree for crying out loud. He didn't care. All he saw was Christ. All he saw was Christ. And Jesus said to him in the end, Today salvation has come to this house because he too is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. David, in the psalm, the blind man, Bartimaeus, the woman with the issue of blood, Zacchaeus, they all pursued the living word. And they all gained wisdom. And they all walked in wisdom. And it caused them to pursue Christ all the more. So, dear Christians, be careful how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. So live in the Word. Live in this book. And live out of this book. And live in pursuit of the Word, Christ Himself. Let's pray.